time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life. So as I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about, I kind of like, man, I want to leave these guys with like a, 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 just, a, just a, a, a great challenge of what I see for you guys in your future, for what I see DSM becoming, for what I, for what I want every DSM student to do and to accomplish. And one of those things is, so I entitled my message, Defy the Odds. Defy the Odds. That's what I want you guys to do. This is my last challenge to you. I want you to defy the odds. So as we jump into this message tonight, I want to give you a, a little bit of some brief information before we read the passage of Scripture together. Now, during the time of David, uh, during the time when David was hiding out, Remember when, you know, David's life, he's kind of, there's that moment when he was kind of in the stronghold, meaning he was, he was in caves, he was hiding out, he was trying to stay away from Saul, trying to escape Saul, because Saul was trying to kill him, because Saul was mad, because he was disobedient to God, and God said, I'm going to strip the kingdom from you, and I'm going to give it to David, and Saul's angry, Saul's trying to kill David, David's going to have what he could have had if he just would have been obedient, but so he's out, he's after David, all right, you guys with me? He's after David. So David's hiding out. As he's being hunted by King Saul. And he gathered around him. Now, I spoke on David's mighty men probably a month or two ago. But I want to speak on one particular one. I could speak for 20 weeks on David's mighty men. I mean, there's just so many things in there that I just love and just can uh, get your teeth into and just want to, want, to, want to accomplish and want to do. So he's hiding out from Saul. But around him began to gather just kind of a fighting force around him. There were several hundred men around him. And some were relatives. Others were outcasts of society. Many were in trouble with the law. I mean, we had some winners here and some losers, but they were all great in this type of atmosphere. And, you know, a real quality group of guys that David had around himself. And really the only trait that they had in common was their devotion to their leader, David. They had loyalty and devotion to their leader. And in 2 Samuel chapter 23, starting with verse 8, we find a section of scripture entitled David's Mighty Men. And the passage describes and names those warriors who were the best of the best. I mean, they did amazing feats. They did amazing accomplishments. I mean, the best of the best did incredible things to advance God's kingdom. Things that were we would look at and we would say, man, this is like... These were like Old Testament Rambos here. And when we watch the movies Rambo, and we know those are pretty fake. You know, we know that Rambo probably couldn't do the things that he could do. I mean, he's just set Sylvester Stallone. You know, maybe he could do the Rocky things, but he can't do all the Rambo things. I mean, it's kind of made up. It's make-believe, right? I mean, it was there, it's there to entertain you. But, I mean, these guys were real. These guys were authentic. I want to focus on one tonight. So I want to read to this, starting with verse 8, 2 Samuel chapter 23. There was also Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant warrior from Kabzeel. He did many heroic deeds, which included killing two of Moab's mightiest warriors. Another time, he chased the lion down into a pit. Then despite the snow and slippery ground, he caught the lion and killed it. 
Another time, armed with a club, he killed a great Egyptian warrior who was seven and a half feet tall. He was armed with a spear like a weaver's rod. And Benaniah wrenched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with it. Such were the exploits of Benaniah, son of Jehoiada. He was too fa- he was he too was as famous as the three mighty men, but he was held in greater honor than the other thirty. But he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. So basically, David put this guy, because of his exploits, because of his heroic feats, David put him in charge. It was like, his, it was like the secret service of the day. And he was in charge of it. This guy, Benaniah. Everybody say Benaniah. So let me state the obvious. This is the obvious as we read that story. Benaniah was not the odds-on favorite in any of these encounters. Okay, he had, he had to be a two-to-one underdog when he was double-teamed by two mighty Moabites. And I'm guessing the Egyptian giant was at least a ten-to-one favorite over Benaniah. And if I'm placing bets on an average-sized Israelite with a club... Or a giant Egyptian, seven and a half feet tall, with a spear, I'm going to put my money on the sharp pointy thing every time. But the weapon advantage is only part of the, 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 the disparity. According to scripture, the Egyptian was seven and a half feet tall. Now, if you think about the boxing world, in the boxing world, the tail of the tape is a major factor in who is favored to win a fight. The tail of the tape simply means the reach advantage. The tail of the tape is how far is their reach, extending from their shoulder to the end of their fist. Okay? That's the reach advantage. So, the fighter with the longer reach has a distinctive advantage over a shorter fighter or a fighter with a shorter reach. So, with the Egyptian's height, the guess would be that he would have a reach advantage of 18 to 24 inches. I mean, that's almost as long as my arm. <laughs> 18 to 24 inches advantage over Benaniah. Now, how did Benaniah even get close enough to grab the spear out of this Egyptian's giant hands? I don't know. But he did. And then there's this epic encounter with the lion in a pit on a snowy day. In fact, Mark Batterson wrote a whole book specifically about Benaniah and about this passage. And I don't even know how you begin to calculate the odds of man versus lion. I don't know what those odds are. Scripture is silent on whether Ben and I even had a weapon. But even if he did, it was no high-powered hunting rifle back in the day. So this was classic hand-to-paw combat with Ben and I having this distinct physical advantage once again. Now, not only do fully grown lions weigh up to 500 pounds and can run up to 35 miles per hour, they have the power in their jaws to crush skull bones and teeth designed to tear through animal hides. I mean, come on. Lions hunt wildebeests, giraffes, water buffaloes. I mean, Benaniah, he's like an hors d'oeuvre. I mean, he's like the little, you know, the, the, the little snack before the actual meal is about to begin. And what about the pit? What about this pit that Benaniah chases this lion into and leaps into the pit? Now, a pit is a lion's domain. A lion's vision is five times better than a human's 2020 vision. Five times better. This lion had a huge advantage in a dimly lit pit. And I guarantee you that a sure-footed lion with cat-like reflexes certainly gains the upper hand in snowy, slippery conditions. Wouldn't you agree? 
So I don't know if you can picture this on a Hollywood screen, but this would make a great movie. In fact, you know what? If you would just read this, the movies from Hollywood would get boring to you. I mean, there is everything in Hollywood is in this book. And it's better because it tells you the truth and it doesn't lie to you. It doesn't market false beliefs to you. It doesn't market idolatry to you. It doesn't market any of that stuff. Ben and I did what lion chasers do. He defied the odds. He didn't focus on his disadvantages. It means he didn't focus that he was short. He didn't focus on that he had a short reach advantage. He didn't focus on that he only had 20-20 vision. Maybe he had, I don't really know. But the lines was five times better anyway. Could have been more if his eyesight was worse. He didn't focus on any of those. He didn't focus on that he had a club when he went up against that giant Egyptian. He didn't focus on whether he had a weapon or not when he chased that lion into a pit and killed it. He didn't make excuses. He didn't try to avoid situations where the odds were against him. He didn't try to avoid situations where the odds were against him. Lion chasers know God is bigger and more powerful than any other problem or obstacle they face in this world. God is bigger. So lion chasers, they thrive in the toughest circumstances because they know that the impossible odds set the stage for amazing miracles. This is where they thrive. They thrive in that underdog role. They thrive when the odds are against them. See, there's a pattern in Scripture that's repeated throughout the entire Bible. And sometimes God doesn't intervene until something is humanly impossible. You can see it all throughout Scripture. And he does it, it seems like he does it just in the nick of time. I mean, it reveals one of the great dimensions of God's personality. God loves to tear down our perception of impossible odds. When he says nothing is impossible with God in his word, he wants us to really believe that. He wants us to grasp that. Nothing is impossible when you have God on your side. You know, I was out golfing with Gabe Jenkins. Gabe, how many of you know Gabe Jenkins? He's uh, our, one of our children's pastors. I was out golfing with him last summer, and we came up to this 350-yard par-4 hole. Now, this hole sat back around a few trees, so it was 350 yards, and there was this big ditch, ravine-type thing in between the fairway and the green, which sat back behind these trees. And I said, man, I think I'm just going to go for the green. Everybody else is kind of laying up, you know, before that. I'm going to go, and, and Gabe says, John Mack. If you hit the green, I'm going to buy you a steak dinner. He said, there is no way. And, you know, and that's kind of all I needed. That's all I needed. I love it when people say I can't do something. Because I'm going to go do it. Now, I know my limits. I'm getting a little older. I've had a few knee operations. I know I cannot dominate on the basketball court anymore. <laughs> I know not even to play basketball. It tears me up. In fact, my knee just, I played in Trinidad. That was like three weeks ago. Yeah, I just now recovered. (laughs) My knee just now started feeling better. So I know my limits, but I love when people say, you can't do that. I love that when we watch movies and somebody say, you can't do that. You can't. I mean, come on. The classic Notre Dame Rudy movie. How many of you have seen that? I mean, the little, the little dude on the varsity. I mean, I mean, we love those types of stories. And we love when people say we can't do it. Because, man, it just 
and ignite something inside of us. So I step up to this tea box. I look at the guy and say, you're going to buy me steak dinner if I hit the green. He's like, yeah. So I look, and between these two trees, there's a little gap. I said, I'm going to hit it right through that gap, and it's going to be on the green. So I walked up. I should have brought my golf club. I walked up, and just bam. Ball went through the trees, like right there in the gap where I wanted it to. And they were like, oh, my goodness, no way. So we couldn't see the green. It's behind the tree. So when we drove up there, the ball was about 10 feet from the pin, right on the green. So Gabe owed me a steak dinner because he said that I could. Now, 350 yards is a long shot, but I must remind you, we are in Colorado. The air is thinner. I could not hit that ball 350 yards if I was in another state. That's why I love playing golf here. I can hit the ball so much further. All right? So, so because Gabe had never seen anyone hit the green before or hit the ball like that from the tee box in that hole, because he had never witnessed it, there was this preconceived notion that it couldn't be done. Now, just because you don't witness something doesn't mean it can't be done. Just because you don't have eyewitness interaction with whatever event it is doesn't mean it couldn't be done. I had a pastor tell me once that he didn't believe people could be raised from the dead. I said, well, I just heard like three stories. At this one conference, I was at about people being raised from the dead. I just talked to another guy who was on a missions trip down on the Amazon. And one of the, one of the, the tribesmen people down there, he was raised from the dead. I mean, I've just got, just because you don't have an eyewitness, you know, front row seat or whatever ever action it is, doesn't mean it can't be done. You can't forget, you have a secret weapon. Called the Holy Spirit. It's called God. God knows no boundaries. My goodness, He created the world. He created you. He created me. There's no boundaries set on God. Why do we put boundaries on God? Why do we say, and this is what we say without verbalizing it, this is what we say. We say, God, there's no way you can do that. We walk into a hospital, to a, a sick room. And we say, God, there's no way you can bring them back or heal them. We see someone on crutches or someone in a wheelchair. And we say, God, there's no way you can make them walk. I'm not going to go over and pray for them. I'm too scared looking foolish. You know, God doesn't care if you look foolish. God cares if you're obedient. And if you're carrying the God of the universe and you're carrying the power of the Holy Spirit in you, you should be obedient. Obedient to what he's asking you to do, what he's calling you to do. You know, there has got to be something built into us that triggers this defying odds, emotion that rises up within us. I think it's built in. I think God built it in us. I mean, if someone thought I could do it, it wouldn't be worth doing, would it? If someone thought I could do something, it wouldn't be worth doing. But if someone tells me I can't do something, I'm going to go try to do it. I mean, I wouldn't even try if they told me, oh, yeah, you can do that. I mean, what's the point? Nothing to prove, right? I mean, what's the point of doing something that someone already thinks you can do? I mean, my wife tells me all the time, honey, can you go clean the kitchen? And I'm like, why? I already know I can do that. I don't need to do that. I already know I can do it. No, but if she says, I bet you can't clean that kitchen in 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, you're on. And that kitchen's clean in nine minutes flat. You know, there's just something built into us that, man, that's what we want. You know, and, and, you know, I love that. Okay, so 
I don't know what it is except that God made us with, the, with this desire, this inward desire to defy the odds, to do what no one thinks can be done. And I think this is the very reason why God allows the odds to be stacked against us sometimes. See, he can reveal more of his glory, more of his power through the situation when the odds are stacked against us. Our faith increases when we can't do it in our own strength. Our faith increases when we can't do it in our own power. Our faith increases when the world says it's impossible and we hit our knees and we pray for the impossible and it becomes the possible. So in the story of Gideon, I want to talk to you about this for a minute. Uh, there's the stories in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. Don't worry, I'm not going to read them all to you. In the story of Gideon, we find God asking Gideon to go and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Gideon's army is vastly outnumbered by the Midianites. They are the sure underdogs in their situation. When God gives Gideon this seemingly suicidal command in chapter, chapter 7, verse 2, it says, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. Why would God say that? I mean, if I'm Gideon at this moment, I'm thinking, I misheard God. God, what'd you say? What are you talking about? Or God, God misspoke somehow. And I'm asking God questions, question after question right now, making sure what I heard was true. But God tells, tells Gideon to discharge anyone from his army who's afraid. So Gideon gets up, he says, all right, anyone of you who fear this battle, you can leave now. Guess how many men left? 22,000. 22,000 tuck-tailed and run. They ran. Now Gideon is down. This causes Gideon's army to go down to 10,000 men. Now there's like 100,000 Midianites. Down to 10,000 men and the odds just went up. But God responds and says there are still too many men. And he devises a plan to cut the number down. You're thinking, oh man, Gideon, he's in trouble. He is in trouble. He is up a creek without a paddle. All right, so Gideon's army goes to get a drink of water, and God tells him to dismiss the men who bend down and drink the water like a dog. Not the men who grab it in their hands and pull it up to their face, but the men who get down and they just stick their face right in the river and drink the water. He says, I want you to get rid of those men. So Gideon's army goes to drink the water. And when it's all said and done, Gideon is left. With 300 men. 300 men. He went from 32,000 to 300. And the odds just jumped up to about a million to one. I mean this. This is a real long shot. It even gets better though. God tells Gideon to attack the Midianites with trumpets and jars. Hey, put down your sword. I'm going to give you a trumpet and a jar. And I want you to go attack. Now when the victory is won. And Gideon wins. When the victory is won, God gets all the glory. And if Gideon would have attacked with 32,000 men and won, I'm pretty sure God might have gotten a high five. He might have got some partial credit. But that is not what God wants. God deserves the full credit and all the glory. So this victory that Gideon had defied all the odds. See, God knew. God knew Israel would boast if they had won with their full army. He knows the human nature. He knows the human character. He knows Israel would have boasted if they would have attacked with 32,000 men. So he stacked the odds against them. And all the rest of Gideon's lions that he had to face in his lifetime. 
became very minute that day. He watched God pull off an incredible miracle. Do you think he's going to be more fearful or more fearless after that experience? He's going to be fearless. I just watched God deliver the entire Midianite army with 300 men. See, the more we grow, the bigger God should get. The more we grow in our faith, the bigger God should get. And the bigger God gets, the smaller our lions become. So remember, Scripture says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8. And as I was studying for this message this week, God spoke to me and said, John, sometimes I don't want to move your mountains. He says, I want you to climb them. Sometimes God's not going to move that mountain before you. Because what you're going to gain in faith, what you're going to gain in understanding, what you're going to gain as you perceive and you begin to climb that mountain and you begin to go against the odds, say, man, I'm going to make it to the top. I'm going to make it through this. That's going to build character into you for a lifetime. For a lifetime. Too many times our prayers revolve around asking God to reduce the odds in our lives. We want everything to fall in our favor. We want to be able to feel like we have a chance to win with what we got. But maybe God wants to stack the odds against us so we can experience a miracle of divine proportions. Maybe that's what God wants to do. Maybe faith is trusting God no matter how impossible the odds are. Maybe our impossible situations are opportunities to experience a new dimension of God's favor and God's glory. See, it honestly doesn't matter how many Moabites you're facing or how tall the Egyptian giant is. And the size of the lion isn't really the issue. The issue is how big is your God? It's not the circumstance that's in your path. It's not the mountain you have to climb or the dark valley you have to trudge through. It's how big is your God? Because we know the outcome of the lion chase, we fail to appreciate the way it looked to the average bystander. What if Benaniah had, had been killed by the lion? Let's just say it like it is. I mean, he would have looked completely ridiculous. And I can just hear people at the funeral whispering to each other, what was Benaniah thinking? Moron? Who chases a lion into a pit? Come on, what an idiot. Can't you just hear the whispers between the people and the funeral? But lion chasers, they're not afraid of doing something that seems ridiculous to others. They're not afraid of that. They don't care what others think. They only care what God thinks. And because they know anything is impossible with God, they're willing to take that chance. They're willing to take that risk. A request can never be too, too ridiculous when you're asking the one who knows no limits. So I've been praying almost since the day I started youth ministry. I've been praying that God would send a person into my office and write me a check for $10 million. I've been praying that. <laughs> I heard Brandon Brandon's like, yes, me too. I have been. You know why? Because I've had these, I mean, I've stayed up, I, I've been up sleepless nights dreaming of building a youth center in a city that would attract students from all over that city. That would change a generation in that area. 
And I've got it all in my head. I mean, I've got the chain link fence on the roof with a skate park on the roof. I've got the glassed-in three-and-three basketball courts. I mean, I've got everything laid out in these buildings of how I want it to bring in a generation so I can preach the gospel to them and get them saved. $10 million. Inflation, maybe $15 million now. But, man, I've been praying that. I'm hoping it still happens. I'm believing and praying. If it never happens, it's okay. My God's still a big God. But trust me, if he gives me 15 mil, we're going to build something big. We're going to build something great. We're going to build something that's going to be a lighthouse to that city. And we're going to see God do miracles. So I've been praying for that. So this is the reality that has to be stamped upon your heart. The reality that has to be stamped upon your heart. As you go to your school, as you are in ministry, as you come to youth group, as you go to the grocery store, no matter what you're doing, where you're going, who you're with, this has to be stamped upon your heart. This reality that nothing is too difficult for God. No matter the people you encounter, the situations you find yourselves in, nothing is too difficult for God. See, we tend to rank miracles, don't we? We tend to rank them in our, in our own minds. Almost like a judge at a gymnastics competition that ranks a routine based on the degree of difficulty. I mean, we rank prayer requests by the d- degree of difficulty. Let's take the miracle in 2 Kings chapter 6, for instance. 2 Kings chapter 6 records what might be one of the most ridiculous prayer requests in Scripture. A group of prophets are chopping trees near a river, And one of the prophets, as he's chopping the tree near the river, the axe head flies off at the end of his stick and goes in the water. All right, so the prophet who lost the axe head said to Elisha, Alas, master, for it was borrowed like it's the end of the world. So he had borrowed this axe from someone else, and now he had lost it in the river. Now notice the verb tense, borrowed. It's the past tense, obviously. Now, as far as the prophet who lost the axe head is concerned, it's gone, swallowed up by that river. This apprentice regarded his loss as final. I mean, it's over. There was no hope or even a thought that he would get it back. He probably turned to Elisha for some sympathy or something, but he never expected a miracle. I mean, everybody knows that any mineral with a density greater than one gram per cubic centimeter doesn't float. We know that, right? You guys didn't know I knew that. Translation, iron axe heads don't float. Or do they? See, there's only one way to find out, and that's to pray a ridiculous prayer. Now, here's what I love about this story. If I'm Elisha, let's say I'm Elisha, and one of my little apprentice prophets, you know, comes to me and says, Elisha, Elisha, I lost the axe head, for it was borrowed. You know, if, I, if I'm seeing this happening, you know, I feel bad for the guy. That he lost a borrowed accent, sort of. You know, maybe I let him borrow mine. Maybe I drive him to the local hardware store to buy another one. But it never crosses my mind to pray that it would float. I mean, you can tell the wheels are turning in Elisha's mind because he asks this apprentice prophet, where did the axe head fall in? That's what he asks him. But he shows, as he shows uh, the the apprentice is probably saying to himself, what difference does it make? But anyway, he shows, you know, the Elisha, the the prophet Elisha. He shows him where the axe head goes in. Elisha cuts a stick and he throws it into the water, right where the man said the axe head fell in. 
And something happens that has probably never happened before and will probably maybe never happen again. The iron axe head floats. It floats to the surface. Now, this ranks as one of my favorite miracles in Scripture for a couple of reasons. First, this isn't a life or death situation, is it? I mean, it's a chunk of iron that fell off a stick into the water. It's not really a big deal. If that's the worst thing that ever happened to you, then you're having a pretty good life. I mean, this may sound crazy, but doesn't it seem like maybe you ought to save an amazing miracle like this for maybe a little bigger tragedy? Maybe something a little bigger. You know, it kind of corresponds in my book with the turning of water into wine at the wedding reception. You know, why waste your first miracle on helping a bride and groom save face because they didn't stock enough wine for the reception? I mean, if you look close enough, though, you realize that this reveals something about God's fatherly instincts towards you. He cares about the little things in our lives, like wedding receptions and borrowed axe heads or borrowed tools. See, God is great not just because nothing is too big for him. God is great because nothing is too small for him either. The other reason I love this miracle is because it's such a ridiculous request. I almost can't say that. Ridiculous request. Elisha had to feel funny praying this prayer, I would think. Or maybe he did. I mean, dear God, I know that iron axe heads have a density of 7.2 grams per cubic centimeter. But, oh, Lord, would you consider defying the laws of physics, oh, great one, and do what has never been done before? Oh, Lord, please make this iron axe head swim. Maybe he didn't use those words. But that's what I'm thinking as I read the story. So these kinds of miracles, they help, redef- they help us redefine reality. And the reality is that no request of ours is too unimportant to God. Every re- request that we make is important to God. Every request that we bring to him, he treasures. And he knows. And he's at work. What are the odds of Jesus feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish? Not very good odds, are they? Let's just say that each loaf of bread and each fish is equal to one meal. Then I'm guessing the odds were approximately 5,000 to seven. You guys understand that math? Five loaves, two fish, seven. All right, 5,000 to seven. And to the disciples, that seemed like an insurmountable problem. And Jesus asked them, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, what kind of question is that? I mean, they're kind of out on a mountaintop. They're out on the side of a hill. Where are we going to buy? And there's no place around to buy bread. So where should we buy bread for these people to eat? So now I can almost see the disciples laughing at Jesus' statement, thinking he was being sarcastic. I mean, you can hear the astonishment in Philip's voice as he responds, Jesus, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have one bite. You know, their, their, their smiles quickly diminish as they realize Jesus is quite serious about this. So you can almost see the disciples gathered in groups trying to crunch the numbers. But anyway, you slice five loaves and two fillets of fish, you still come up 4,993 meals short for feeding 5,000. It just doesn't add up, does it? Matthew chapter 6, 11 through 13. Jesus took the loaves. He gave thanks and distributed them to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all, when they had all, when they had all had, 
enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. See, in God's economy, five loaves of bread plus two fish equals 5,000 meals with a remainder of 12 basketfuls. That's God's economy. They actually ended up with more than what they had started with after feeding 5,000 people. And see, God is given the glory because Jesus defied impossible odds. You might be thinking, even if God is great enough to do absolutely anything, why would he answer my prayer? Why would he do a miraculous thing through me? Well, when it comes right down to it, God is more than being the one who can be in all places at all times. He's more than all powerful, and he's more than being all knowledgeable. He's our father. And his response to us many times is truly fatherly in nature. He is always working behind the scenes, engineering our circumstances, and setting, setting us up for success. That's what God does. Some of us don't believe that. But I want to make that a truth statement tonight for you. He is always working behind the scenes, engineering our circumstances, and setting us up for success. Now, I know there are some in this place this morning that, or tonight that did not have good earthly fathers. So you will have a, to really dig into Scripture to gain a right understanding of what your Heavenly Father looks like. And when I, when I first became a father, man, I just loved watching Hudson. Hudson was my firstborn. He's six years old now. I just loved watching him. I mean, the things he did and how he learned and how many times I would just wonder what he's thinking, what that little mind is, is thinking and racing at. And, and, I, and I love to this day giving my kids big hugs. And I'm still amazed that God gifted me and blessed me with these two boys. And like a loving parent, our Heavenly Father loves watching his children. In fact, God isn't just watching. He's actually scrapbooking about us. Did you know that? He scrapbooks about you. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, Scripture calls it a scroll of remembrance. And God is recording absolutely every act of righteousness that you do. That includes the secret things that no one sees, the small things that no one notices. And nothing you do right will go unrewarded. And God isn't just recording those acts of righteousness. He's rejoicing over you the way a parent rejoices over a child. So there was this time raising Hudson and Maddox where they just, I don't know, they just hit this wall in pooping. They were constipated, okay? I'm, this is going to be a great story. I love pooping stories. So it, it kind of went through this thing, and they were constipated, and they just couldn't poop. And, man, we're trying everything. I mean, I'm, I'm feeding this guy like Pedialax, like it's going out of business. I mean, it's like candy. I'm just feeding, I, I'm doing whatever I can to help my boys. Because, you know, when they get constipated, I mean, their stomach hurts. And they're like, oh, you know. Hey, so I'm helping them. So after like several days of this, Hudson goes and he poops on the potty. And he's so excited because, oh, Daddy, I, I mean, his pants are down to here. Daddy, I'm so excited he just pooped on the potty. You know, we're jumping up and down in the kitchen and we're high-fiving. We're getting excited about it. I'm getting pumped about my kid pooping on the potty. It's great. Now, please don't miss the simple truth. 
God is a proud parent, and you are the apple of his eye. And our Heavenly Father celebrates every accomplishment. Every odd you defy and every obstacle you overcome is celebrated by your Father in heaven. And I believe nothing brings God greater joy than when one of his children defies the odds and accomplishes so much more than what they ever thought they could do. And trust me, God was a lot more excited about Benaniah chasing and killing the lion than Benaniah was. I mean, I could see God elbowing one of his angels. Man, did you see my boy Benaniah? That guy bare hands, man, crushed that lion. I mean, I'm sure he's bragging about it. He's probably saying, man, that dude's got crazy faith. Oh, how I love him. Lion chasers defy the odds. They make their father proud. You may not have had a perfect heavenly father, but you, or a perfect earthly father, but you have a perfect heavenly father who watches your every move with great anticipation. So here's what I want you to remember. As DSM, as a body of young people that youth ministries across this nation look to. Remember that. Youth ministries across this nation look to this group to see what they're doing, to see what they're accomplishing, to see the odds they're defying. They look to gain encouragement, to gain vision, to gain insight. Some things I want you to remember. Lion chasers thrive in the toughest circumstances because they know that impossible odds set the stage for amazing miracles. Two, the, the more we grow, the bigger God should get, and the bigger God gets, the smaller our lines become. Our faith increases. Three, the reality is nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing in our lives is too difficult when we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And four, God is always working behind the scenes, engineering our circumstances and setting us up for success. See, when the odds are stacked against you and you lock eyes with your lion, what are you going to do? How are you going to react? Will you run away or will you defy the odds and start the chase? We were born to chase. It's woven into everyone's DNA. We were born to chase the lion. And maybe it's time to start chasing God again. Maybe for you, it's time to start chasing after him, chasing after his presence, chasing after his holiness, chasing after his righteousness. Maybe it's time to unleash the lion chaser that has been built into you because it's what you've been destined to do. This means when God comes and says, man, he wants to bring revival to your campus and he's gonna bring it through you. We don't cower in fear, but an excitement and an anticipation begins to rise up within us. An expectation of the miraculous begins to overwhelm us. We begin to dream and prepare our own hearts as well as setting the stage for a heavenly intervention. It means we work hard to prepare the way of the Lord. Knowing that everything we're doing is not in vain, but for his purposes and for his kingdom to come. Young people, if you will defy the odds, if you will step forward when everyone else steps back or runs away, if you will do this for your king, for your Lord, you will see heaven come to earth. You will see and be witness to some of the greatest miracles you will ever experience. I promise you. I promise you. My charge to you is 
to defy the odds. Do the great things that God has created you to do. It's going to be great. If you'll do that, I just want you to stand up with me tonight. Just stand. If you'll defy the odds. If you'll say, Pastor John, no risk is going to be too big for me to take. Nothing that God puts or places before me is going to make me run in fear. Every obstacle, every mountain I encounter is a mountain and obstacle that I will overcome. Because my God is great. Because my God is greater than anything this world can throw at me. My God is greater than any mountain that stands before me. My God is greater than any, any of the darkest valleys that I might have to walk through. My God's greater. How many of you tonight would say there's an obstacle in your path right now? Just, right, just raise your hand. There's an obstacle in your life right now that you need God's help to overcome. I want to pray for you tonight. And I want you, as I pray for you, I want you to just to allow God to rise up inside of you and say, this is not going to hinder me. I'm not going to allow this obstacle to hinder my relationship with God. I'm not going to allow this obstacle to stop me from pursuing everything that God has called me to do and laid before me to accomplish. And some of you don't know what those things are. Some of you don't know what God's calling you to do. Some of you don't realize the things that God's laying before you, even right now, that he wants you to accomplish. But if you will tune in to Heaven Station, if you will tune in to the voice of the Holy Spirit, he will begin to lay those things out for you. And you will begin to walk, not in the natural, but you'll begin to walk in the supernatural. You'll begin to leave the ordinary and become extraordinary for the kingdom of heaven. And that's what God wants you to do to do. It's not by our might or our power, right? It's not by any might or any power, but by my Holy Spirit will you do great things. Will you live in righteousness? Will you live with holiness? Will you call on me and I will be there? It's by your faith that I will accomplish everything that I've set before you to accomplish. Let's just kind of lift our hands out like this tonight. Dearly Father, I thank you. God, I praise you for this ministry. I praise you for the incredible students that fill this house tonight. I praise you for the opportunity that I have had to pastor them to get to know them, to walk with them, to live with them, to cry with them, to laugh with them, to experience your mountaintops and to experience your valleys. God, I praise you for all of you because it's made us into who we are. And Father, my desire for the students of DSM is that they will allow nothing to stand in their way not the gates nor all the armies of hell could stand before them and stop them from advancing your kingdom upon this earth. And God, I pray that they will advance. I pray, Lord Jesus, against all odds, they may see an army that they are far outnumbered with. But against all odds, God, I pray that they advance. They advance with your might. They advance with your name written upon them. 
God, they will advance in might and in power and by your spirit, oh God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that every every snare and every trap that the enemy has laid before them would be laid to waste. I pray, Lord Jesus, that every obstacle, God, would be obliterated by them. I pray, Lord Jesus, that they would move with great unity and great love. That, Father, they would become a voice of this generation that has your attention. A voice of this generation that influences, that builds up. A voice of this generation, Lord God, that calls out and calls the greatness out of others. God, I pray that they know who they are. That they will know that they are sons and daughters of the Most High. That they have a Heavenly Father that loves them, cherishes them, cares for them, big and small. God, I pray that they would defy all odds see a move of God in Colorado Springs and across these middle school and high school campuses like has never been seen before, Lord Jesus. A move of God that has been ignited by young people, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds, Lord Jesus, that love you more than they love anything in this world, that trust you more than they trust anything in this world, and that God will run hard for your kingdom and for your glory. God, we ask these things in your holy and precious name. And I'm believing for your miracles to flow, your power and presence to come in their lives as they defy the odds. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. And over time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life.